0: WCNC Charlotte, this is Flashpoint.
1: Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson, Charlotte's election for mayor and city council is Tuesday. As you know, it should have happened last year, but due to the delayed census data, it's happening right now. And as of just this past Thursday morning, more than 19,000 people voted early. Not that many. Taking a look at affiliation breakdown from Tuesday, Democrats were overperforming when it came to voting. Republicans were right on track unaffiliated voters were lacking when it came to getting to the polls. Joining us now, the guy to break down all this data for us, Catawba College political science professor, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Professor, thanks as always for coming on. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, so talk to us about the city elections here in Charlotte. You you are saying that we should not be expecting a a high turnout, and I know we have numbers from
2: early voting. WE DO HAVE EARLY NUMBERS FROM VOTING, AND THEY ALL POINT TO WHAT I WOULD DESCRIBE IN A POLITICAL SCIENCE TERM AS ABYSMAL TURNOUT. YES, WE ARE IN A MUNICIPAL ELECTION. THESE ARE uh, THE OFFICES THAT AFFECT THE CITIZENS ON A DAY-TO-DAY BASIS WITH THEIR POLICY DECISIONS, BUT THE LIKELIHOOD IS BY TUESDAY'S ELECTION, I would be shocked if we have over 10% of the 600,000 voters casting a ballot for this municipal election.
1: What does that say about voters in Charlotte?
2: Well, certainly, Charlotte is a dominant Democratic town. Uh, If you look at voter registration, nearly half of the voters are registered Democrats. Uh, Only 18% are registered Republicans. So it's almost a kind of foregone conclusion. Yes, Republicans are making an effort. They are trying to put the resources into winning elections. But like national urban areas, Charlotte has moved steadily more and more Democratic. And when you don't have a competitive two-party system, that oftentimes impacts the turnout level, and you get only the most core partisans of that one-party city. All right, switching gears to
1: to the November normal election, for lack of a better term. At the top of the ticket is the Senate race. New numbers show Democrat Sherry Beasley has a, a big financial advantage over Republican Ted Budd. In the last three months, Beasley was able to raise $5.8 5.8 million dollars. Bud brought in just under 1.8 million. Many polls have the two pretty close, but giving Bud the edge. Uh, you, you think, despite her financial advantage right now, uh, he still got the overall electoral advantage?
2: I think the midterm fundamentals that we as political scientists study do point to an advantage Republican year this year, and particularly here in North Carolina. These are impressive numbers for the Beasley campaign. And I think what this shows, more importantly, is to national organizations, particularly out of Washington, to say, hey, I can hold my own when it comes to fundraising add in your money and so the outside money the special interest group money should start to flow into north carolina we'll see it in terms of the ad wars that will go on televised uh, airwaves here shortly but this is a real battle to get this republican held seat now by richard burr back in democrats hands
1: Take it all rest here on north carolina which is why this will be one of the most uh closely watched uh, races here in the state. It, it strikes me that conservatives celebrated the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, but there were probably several candidates, uh, maybe like Mr. Budd or other ones across the country, who also at the same time, uh, their road to victory got a little more complicated.
2: Yeah, I think that this this Dobbs decision decision certainly energized a core constituency of Democratic voters that need to show up for this fall. But it probably also helped Republicans slightly in terms of saying, OK, now the emphasis is on the states and in particularly if the Republicans can capture super majorities in the North Carolina General Assembly, they will basically have carte blanche to do whatever they want in terms of abortion restrictions and so this is probably a wash for both sides but i would say that this is probably an elevation of a potentially good turnout for november's general election
1: uh what do you think about republicans taking over super majorities again they had it just a few years ago do you think it's likely they do it again
2: I think the scenario is certainly there. They're going to be competing in areas such as the urban suburbs in Mecklenburg for that supermajority status in both chambers, probably a little more likely in the state Senate. But the state House has that window of competitive but lean Democratic seats that if Republicans can pick off, they can get towards that supermajority status.
1: Uh, taking a look at uh North Carolina's other senator um, right now, Tom Tillis. This -hmm. week he was one of several Republicans who voiced possible support for a bill that would codify same-sex marriage at the federal level. Uh, The bill uh, passed the House with bipartisan support. Uh, And this sort of surprised some folks, um, only because it was 10 years ago, Tillis was the House Speaker in Raleigh, uh, when the General Assembly and then voters passed a state constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. He sort of, hinted at the time to a group of, uh, of students that he thought this was a generational issue is what he called it 10 years ago and that it would be only a matter of time I think he said at the time 20 years before it got repealed little did we know it's going to be a, about three years after this um w- were you surprised to hear him go ahead and say you know what I could probably support this
2: I wasn't. I think he certainly recognizes that as this generational dynamic, as you indicated, is playing out that the vast majority, even among uh, a significant plurality of Republicans are supportive of same sex marriage. So I think that this policy issue while potentially in the bullseye of the U.S. Supreme Court if this codification goes through the Congress it would kind of put the issue potentially to rest but we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out particularly in the states.
1: Coming up next on Flashpoint we continue our discussion is North Carolina really the best in business as CNBC recently found that's coming up next. Welcome back to Flashpoint my guest this morning Catawba College professor Michael Bitzer. Earlier this month, uh, North Carolina was named the number one state for business by CNBC. Governor Cooper said that economic boost is being helped by the state's ability to offer tax incentives to tech giants like Apple, while also supporting small businesses. CNBC, CNBC says that state leaders have been able to put aside their deep political divisions in many cases and boost business and the economy. Um, they said it's it's uh, been a sort of a uh, a sense of bipartisanship among our leaders here in North Carolina, and some folks, maybe yourself, who watch these things closely out of Raleigh, sort of scratch your head, and like, "Really? Maybe so." But you know what? In fairness, in fairness, um, compared to how some other states are handling uh, things, maybe we are doing it in a slightly more evolved bipartisan way.
2: I think we are in a begrudgingly bipartisan uh, (laughs) status. You know, think back to when Cooper was just elected. Even before he took office, the legislature went on a tear and basically took executive powers away. He took them to court. There was significant battles. I think the past couple of years with his reelection, particularly, there has been a kind of detente going on. And I think one of the key indicators has been the issue of Medicaid expansion. You know, to hear Senate uh, President Pro Tem Phil Berger come out and support it and say the state Senate would adopt such a measure, I think represents the fact that the two sides are seeing that they have to work together. The big question, again, will be post-November, will the Republicans have the super majorities in the legislature to basically say, we don't need Roy Cooper anymore to do what we want to do?
1: Being a bit naive uh, when I say that that I'm glad at least we got the recognition because anything that like that is good for all of us in North Carolina. Um, and, and I hope it's the case that bipartisanship is is winning out because they think it's good for the voters uh, at the same time. Um, all right, I wanna talk about something that is admittedly a complicated issue, uh, especially for TV, but, but it's a super important one. It's the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, last month agreeing to take on, it's a controversial North Carolina case. It's based on sort of a a fringe legal argument called independent state legislator theory. It it is complicated, but it basically means, help me out here if, if I get this wrong, it basically means that state legislatures, in our case, the General Assembly, would be the only and final say in congressional and presidential elections. Traditionally, the US Supreme Court has deferred to state courts on how state constitutions and laws would be interpreted. For example, I know currently, our concurrent congressional maps were drawn up by a state court. So this instead would make politicians and state capitals sort of the final say in these congressional and federal races, is that about right?
2: that's exactly right i think what we do is we look to the constitution and in there when it comes to federal elections the constitution indicates that legislatures set the time place and manner for federal elections which is an odd kind of relationship but that's how we've had it structured what proponents of this theory are arguing is ONLY LEGISLATURES, NOT GOVERNORS AND PARTICULARLY NOT STATE COURTS CAN SET THOSE GROUND RULES FOR FEDERAL ELECTIONS. THIS INCLUDES THINGS LIKE REDISTRICTING, WHEN PEOPLE CAN VOTE, WHERE THEY CAN POTENTIALLY VOTE. UNLESS CONGRESS intercedes and sets those ground rules for the states so this is a critically important case that will likely be heard later this year most likely a decision released in the spring of next year and remember north carolina goes through congressional redistricting yet again next year
1: i've heard like worst case scenarios are like sky is falling sort of thing is it really um potentially that uh, big of a change to the way we currently do things if the Supreme Court were to side uh, with North Carolina in this case?
2: I think it has the potential to move us in directions that we are not comfortable with as an American values-based system. Uh, We talk about authoritarianism, we talk about democracy backsliding. I think if the hinge is basically unleashed for particularly Republican legislatures to do whatever they want, we will see an excess of movement towards restricting uh, issues like voting rights.
1: Uh, I mean, and in fairness, this could be Democrats doing it, too, depending on who's in power at the time. But it it, it opens up the possibility of, of sort of one party rule at being able to run rampant. And, and I guess they're not being a checks and balance system.
2: With, like their exactly. Current. With no checks and balances whatsoever.
1: Uh, you were quoted in a New York Times piece uh, this week, an op-ed piece, columnist Frank Bruni, uh, who I don't think is actually uh, working at Duke, um, making yes. the case that North Carolina is a microcosm for the country. He said it in quote, I learned how inexact the purple label is for North Carolina. It implies some real blending of red and blue, some halfway point. But North Carolina purple is purple only if you step far back the way you may make sense of a Surratt painting so that you no longer see the individual dabs and and blotches of red and blue. Um, He's making the case that you were sort of making at the top of this segment uh, when it comes to Charlotte's voting um, is that. It's purple only when you step really far back. (laughs) But instead, you've got Charlotte, which is heavily blue. You've got places um, down 74 uh, that are, are solidly, solidly red. And there's not a lot of purple happening.
2: There really isn't. I mean, if you look at the 2020 presidential election, the city of Charlotte gave Joe Biden 72% of its votes. You go into Union County, just across the county line with Mecklenburg, they gave Donald Trump 62% of the vote. The real purple area is in the urban suburbs in Mecklenburg, such as Mint Hill, Pineville, Cornelius, that split 52 48 for Biden. But you really have to go above 30,000 feet to see that purple across the state. And,
1: and, um... Let me ask you to take off just your political science hat and, and be more of more just like a, a, a studier of the human condition and our communities and, and things like that. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that if I live in Charlotte, mostly all my neighbors are, are, are blue or liberal, or if I live um, in Union County, they much more tend to be uh, red. Why, for the sake of argument, why does that matter?
2: It matters because if you are only around like-minded individuals and you meet someone from the opposite party, you go, what in the world is wrong with these people? And I think that as humans, as human society, as people that need to work together, we have got to understand where the other side is coming from. We may not always agree with them, but we at least have to recognize and not be fearful or angry or threatened by the other side in order to advance our society. And
1: so by the way we're sort of um, burrowing in in our little enclaves and living with only like-minded people, it's really giving us a limited view of the world around us.
2: It is, and we have sorted ourselves, and the fault dear Brutus doesn't lie in our stars, it lies with us. A good reminder to get
1: out and meet new people and and people who don't agree with you. And listen, you know what? If your neighbors don't agree with you, that's okay. They're still your good neighbors. They're still good people. And that's perfectly fine. You can still have a drink with them. You can (laughs) go have a drink with them. Just don't talk about politics. Or if you do, just be okay that you disagree. It's fine. It's good. They're not your enemy. All right, Professor, we talked about a lot of stuff. Thank you as always. I do appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back. This week, Vice President Kamala Harris was in Charlotte. She was here to talk about the Biden administration's investment in affordable high-speed Internet. She also met with state legislators to discuss protecting reproductive rights. WCNC Charlotte's Indira Skiva has more on her visit.
3: In the 21st century, high-speed Internet is not a luxury. It is a necessity. Speaking before a crowd at the Carol Hefner Center in Charlotte, Vice President Harris said the Affordable Connectivity Program helps low-income families afford high-speed internet. In addition to giving eligible families money to use towards their internet bill, some internet providers agreed to offer plans costing $30 or less. The two combined means high-speed internet may even be free for some families. Workers use the internet to find jobs and receive training. Seniors use the Internet to see a doctor without leaving their home. For so many of us, the Internet is an essential part of our daily lives. And yet, more than 30 million people in our country still do not have access to high-speed Internet. In May, North Carolina was the first state to participate in Internet for All, another federal program giving every state at least $5 million to invest in broadband Internet access. According to the Center for Digital Equity, last year, nearly 55,000 households in Mecklenburg County did not have access to the Internet, mostly because they couldn't afford it. Bruce Clark says that's now changing.
0: Our digital navigator service has signed up over 200 residents for the Affordable Connectivity Program just in the week after the uh, announcement a couple months ago. And so since then, I suspect that number has gone higher. More Flashpoint after this.
1: Welcome back to Flashpoint. New data shows just 5% of all realtors in the US are black, but a group based out of Charlotte Southend, is on a mission to change that. WCNC Charlotte's Carolyn Bruck introduces us to this team of all black realtors seeking solutions for
0: achievable home ownership for all. Representation always matters. We are one of five individually owned or independently owned black firms in Charlotte, North Carolina.
3: At Noir Group in Charlotte's South End, they're changing the narrative.
0: The mission behind the team was more so to build a platform for agents that look like us.
3: Real estate broker Jerrell Fields started Noir Group in 2019. The group of 11 young black real estate agents celebrated its official launch just this past May.
0: Just talking to somebody that looks like you helps you get a better understanding because at least you can feel like they've been there before or they're talking from you know, experience, you know, and that that helps. Uh, We are unapologetically black.
3: Unapologetic and undeniably needed. Data from the U.S. Census Bureau shows just 5% of realtors in the U.S. are black. What's more, the disparity between white homeownership and black homeownership is monumental. In the past decade, it's gotten even worse. Nationally, homeownership in white households sits at 74%, but for black households, the rate is lower much lower. Just 44.7% of black households own their homes nationwide. According to North Carolina's Housing Finance Agency, those national statistics also reflect the home ownership racial divide in North Carolina. It's a real problem. One the Noir Group is working to fix.
0: If the disparity between buying a house and not owning a home is having the money to put down on a property, then there are solutions out there, but educating the people about those, those solutions
3: helps. That's exactly what Noir Realtor Brittany McDonald is doing on her Instagram, the Crown's Realtor. 50,000 followers and counting. My content is geared around educating people about real estate. There's a lot of information that people don't know, and you don't know what you don't know. So um, anything that I can think of that people have questions about, I try to post that. Just to be a resource for people who look like me is very important. Anything to bring equity to an entire community who had previously been denied the American dream.
0: It's not just about selling houses. It's about building relationships within the community And having people see what we're doing and want to be a part of it.
3: If you dream of owning a home but think it's out of reach, we are here to help. Just text the word home to 704 329 3600 and we'll send you a link to this story. There you'll find information about all of the programs out there from down payment assistance programs to home financing grants. There are numerous options available. You just have to know about them. So, We're making that easy. Again, text that word HOME to 704-329-3600. For WCNC Charlotte, I'm Carolyn Bruck.
1: Carolyn, thank you on what I think was her first appearance on Flashpoint so far. Folks, come interact with us here on uh, social media. Let us know if there's something you want us to talk about. As always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast as well. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here Sunday at 11 a.m. Have a great week.